Let's go ahead and get into the Word of God tonight. Come on, open up. There we go. All right. Got to get my notes open here. All right, we're in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, picking up. Uh, I want to thank Benny for uh, stepping in uh, last minute for me last week. Uh, First Kings, I, I, I wasn't sick. I uh, was invited to a living, uh, living well dinner for the Living Well Pregnancy Center. And uh, the individual that was going to preach for me ended up getting sick. So Benny stepped in last minute and, and did it. So, um, but I appreciate that, Benny. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll get into the word tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. And we thank you, God, for your word that is useful for Everything we need in life and godliness uh, to follow you, to, to honor you, to understand righteousness and, and uh, to stay away from sin. So now, Lord, we pray that you would open up your word to us and teach us. Maybe we be faithful to do the things that you command us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Benny ended in, Ex- in 1 Kings, sorry, I said Exodus, 1 Kings chapter 18, and he ended with uh, a incredible victory for Elijah the prophet. I mean, it's probably one of the best stories out of the Old Testament. First Kings, you have uh, in one corner, <laughs> standing at five foot eight, um, 120 or 50 pounds, I don't know, Elijah. In the other corner, the prophets of Baal, and they're showing down off on Mount Carmel. And if you're not familiar with the story, go back and read chapter 18, because God declares himself the victor to all of the northern kingdoms of Israel as the prophets of Baal cut themselves and try to get their god, their false god, to, uh, to ignite a fire and consume the offering. Elijah sits there laughing at them. And uh, Elijah definitely could have been part of the, uh, the, the uh, section that's just making fun of the other team, you know. Uh, he's just goading them as he goes. But after he does that, he prays to God, and God consumes this offering with great fire. Then they go and they kill all the prophets of Baal. It's a huge victory. Uh, and then the drought ends with rain, and we see that happen. And so it just seems like everything is going the right direction. Uh, and now we come to chapter 19, where all of a sudden we take a sharp turn the, in, in Elijah's mind, the wrong way. So let's read verse nine, chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab, that's the king of Israel, told Jezebel, that's his terrible evil wife, all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that and when he saw that he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. So I'm going to pause there. So King Ahab goes back to his evil wife, and he's also evil, don't get me wrong, <clears throat> tells him her what happened. Now, you and I would expect if they all saw this event happen at Mount Carmel, 
where God intervenes in such an incredible, fantastic way. I mean, an incredible miracle of this fire coming down from heaven and consuming the offering and this great victory. You, you and I might be prone to think that, oh, that's going to show everybody in Israel who the true God is. They're going to get rid of all their false gods. Everybody's going to turn into repentance and they're going to turn back toward God. Well, we would be wrong. And unfortunately, I think Elijah thought that too. So when Ahab comes back to Jezebel and says what happened, she sends this message forward to Elijah. Now, I kind of think it's a false message. And I think she was intending for Elijah to run for his life, not for Elijah to actually stay and test her on the message. The reason why is if you intend to go and kill somebody, why would you send a message ahead to where that individual is, because obviously they can find him, and, and then say, hey, I'm going to kill you, so I'm coming for you. You know, it just doesn't seem like uh, that would be the right way to do it. Now, I don't know her motives, but it seems like her intent was to get him to run out of the, out of the area, get him as far away from northern, the northern kingdom as possible. And so he did. He, she threatens him, and Elijah, it says... Uh, when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is about 90 miles south, and it belonged to the kingdom of Judah. So he took off down to, to the kingdom of Judah. It's interesting because in the past, God spoke to Elijah and told Elijah where to go. This time, God doesn't speak to Elijah. Rather, Elijah receives a message from Jezebel, his enemy, and an enemy of God, and he goes. So whether or not Elijah is doing the will of God in this, I do not know. It seems like Elijah is almost uh, motivated out of fear and failure and not motivated by the truth of, of the, and, and the real circumstances there in Israel because God didn't tell Elijah to move. Now, I'm not saying that Elijah is sinning against God in some way. But I think it's kind of adding to his heartache and depression that we're going to see Elijah go through. And, uh, and so as Elijah gets up and he runs for his life, we read that he not only got to Beersheba and he left his servant there, but then he went a day's journey into the wilderness and, came and sat down under a broom tree. Now, think about this for a minute. Elijah runs 90, mile, 90 miles south gets to Beersheba, ditches his servant, goes a day into the wilderness, and there he is in a lonely place, and he himself is all alone. That's a, that's a terrible place to be, especially in the, in the midst when you think you're a failure. I don't know if you've ever been there or not in a state of uh, feeling like a failure or feeling down or even depressed. Uh, I think most of us at some point in our lives have experienced failure before or feeling like we've lost or done something uh, that has, is, a, is we, we're just alone. And the sad part is, is when we feel that way, often we retreat to by ourselves, which is probably one of the last places we need to be. And so Elijah, is, he's there alone and the wilderness is literally reflecting his state. <laughs> it's a lonely place, desolate and he himself feels lonely and desolate. And he prayed, the text says, and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. I'm done. I'm done. 
And, and, and he said, now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Let's talk about this statement for a moment. It is enough. Elijah's expectations, I believe, were that everybody in Israel would turn to the truth. You know, I think sometimes we think that if God does some miracle in someone's life, well, that'll turn them around. That'll make them believe. The fact is, is that doesn't make people believe anymore. You know, it doesn't take great logical arguments to be an unbeliever. Actually, it's quite the opposite. All the, the good arguments, all the logic used leads us toward God. But what we find is those who don't want to worship God, it doesn't matter if a great miracle happens or not. It doesn't matter if, if God sends ten plagues on, on, on a country. It doesn't matter if God parts the Red Sea. It, it, it's not going to matter because the fact is, is in their unbelief, they're going to continue to not uh, submit themselves or bow their knee to God. So I think Elijah's expectations weren't necessarily God's expectations. And, and that's always a problem when our expectations are something different than God's. God is going to show himself to be God. God is going to reaffirm to all those that are still in Israel. And we're going to find out later in this chapter, there's 7,000 Israelites who have never bowed a knee to Baal. Do you think they could use some encouragement knowing that God is still on the throne? Absolutely. And I'm sure that Mount Carmel did that very thing. That those 7,000 that heard about Elijah squaring off with the prophets of Baal and calling down fire from heaven and God responding, I am sure and confident that that was everything those prophets needed to know that God is still on the throne. You know, when you're in a culture that has left God and they, they've completely turned away from God. It's a hard place to be. I mean, just think for a moment about our culture. Our culture, we still have church. We still have fellowship. We still pray for each other. We still worship God. We still have amazing community centered around our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as the culture is encroaching closer and closer, as we see darkness moving in and a lack of the fear of God and an embracing of sin, boy, doesn't it affect you in, in your heart and in your mind? Doesn't it challenge you? Don't, I mean, don't you watch the news and go, how could they even think this is good? How can they call this evil good? How can they, they uh, encourage people in doing this evil? I, I know for me, when just in our own culture, it's discouraging to see unbelief set in. And the forsaking of God. So I can only imagine what it was like for these in Israel, these 7,000. Can you imagine if we were left in Orange County to only 7,000 believers? In just Orange County. There's 3 million people in Orange County. So, so just, just in Orange County, there were 7,000 believers. That you'd strip away all of... I, I believe most of our mega churches in the area are more than 7,000 believers. I mean, just think about what that would feel like in this area if those believers were stripped away. Man, it would be a dark <laughs> and discouraging place to be among. So I, I know that the, those who had not bowed the knee to, to Baal 
needed this as much as Elijah did. And I think Elijah's expectation was that everybody would turn. But I think God really more than anything was is preparing Israel and holding them accountable to what the, their rejection. See, God always allows for people to repent. But at the same time, when he reveals himself, he's going to judge. You're going to be expected or you're going to be liable for how you receive him or reject him. Because God reveals himself. He reveals himself to his word. And if you reject him, all you're doing is heaping up judgment. Because God's saying, well, I revealed myself to you. I've, I've given you everything you know, know, know need for truth. And if you're just going to reject me, well, when you stand before the judgment and, and you're saying, well, God, you know, I, I, I asked if you were real and I never saw my chair float across the room. Or God, I asked if you were real and you never healed Aunt Patsy. Or God, I asked if you were real and you never did this for me. Yet God has said, well, wait a minute, I, I gave you testimony here and here and here and here and you rejected every one. And the fact is, is you would still reject it even if I showed you uh, I did these things for you. And uh, so I don't think that uh, we should expect for people to just turn if they see a great miracle. I, we shouldn't see that at all. But at the same time, Elijah says, it is enough. I'm done. I'm a failure. That's really what Elijah's saying. I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm a failure. In fact, you can see that he's saying I'm a failure because he says, now, Lord, take my life. Just take me, for I am no better than my father's. That's, that's saying that I couldn't turn these people. They couldn't turn these people. They're sinners. I'm not good enough. I, if I were living holier or if I were living in more power, God, maybe they would have turned. If I would have been a better follower of you or a better prophet. And uh, sometimes we do that to ourselves. If I was a better this, then this would have happened. And that's not the case at all. But here Elijah is really kind of blaming himself and just saying, I'm done. Now notice the prayer. Take my life. God, take my life. Elijah doesn't see a future in front of him in Israel. Elijah doesn't see a future. You know, it's sad when we let our own uh, skewed image in front of us affect us such a way that we're saying, take my life. God, clearly you can't use me anymore. I would rather die. We, we see that all throughout the Bible there are what, who we'd call heroes of faith who mess up big time. Abraham, <laughs> Moses, Job. Job prayed that same prayer, Lord, take me. It was better that I would have never been born in the midst of the trial. But they can't see what's in front of them. And li- listen, dear Christians, I want to encourage you. You and I are short-sighted. You and I are very short-sighted. We can't see into the future. We can only see what's up close in front of us oftentimes. And oftentimes our current circumstances seem to eclipse God's plan for the future for us. And we're going to see that God has a plan for the future for Elijah. In fact, it's a very incredible plan. And it's interesting that God does not answer this prayer of Elijah's. In fact, not only does he not answer it now for Elijah, because he has a plan for Elijah, God is actually never going to answer this plan for Elijah. Isn't that interesting? Elijah actually never dies. 
Elijah's taken up to heaven. Uh, he's one of the ones that never dies in the scriptures. God's saying, that's not my plan. And he's never going to answer this prayer to Elijah. I just think about that. You know, I, I know back in the 90s, Garth Brooks put a song, Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. And it was all about him going to an old, a high school football game and seeing a girl that he was in love with in high school. And, but but he, he was praying that he would be married to her. And, and, uh, and, and then uh, now he's got a wife and kids and he sees his family. And he's like, wow, thank God for unanswered prayers. Man, I was putting everything on this woman. And that wasn't the one for me. This was the one for me. You know, he just had no, no idea of the future in this song by Garth Brooks. But so it, 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 there's a lot of truth to that, that, uh, that there are times when we pray prayers and we're so eclipsed by the current circumstances that we're not actually wanting, getting God's will in our lives. We're just praying for relief in some way. And, and uh, God says, God's going to say no. In fact, actually, he's going to answer something differently. Now, I want to take you over to Matthew chapter 11 for just a moment. Because in Matthew chapter 11, we see uh, John the Baptist go through something very similar. Now, he's not, John the Baptist isn't praying for death, but he's not sure that he's got things right. Now, if you remember, uh, Jesus showed up at the Jordan, and John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And, and actually, when Jesus showed up, John the Baptist made a declarative statement, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, John the Baptist recognized him in that moment, made the statement, and he even wasn't sure that he should be the one baptizing Jesus. But, but Jesus had him baptize him. And then uh, Jesus began his ministry. Eventually, John the Baptist is arrested, and he's in prison now. And in chapter 11, verse 1 of Matthew, it says this, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to reach, uh, to preach in, the, in the, their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now I'm going to pause there for a moment. Go back to verse 3. Thanks. Um, so John the Baptist has already declared that Jesus is the one, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But now that he's locked up in prison... And he hears about the work of Christ. He's like, maybe I screwed up here. How come? He's a little confused about the Messiah as well. And, and actually the statement, are you the coming one, that's a, a quote really from the Psalms for the identity of Messiah. And, and John is confused thinking, well, maybe I got this wrong because I'm still in jail. Sinners are still reigning around. Uh, how come Messiah hasn't judged yet? We'll go to verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Stay there on verse 6. So Jesus' response is the messianic identity, the, the identity of Messiah. Jesus' response is right out of Isaiah saying, listen, go tell John that, that the, the dead are raised, the blind see, uh, the, the, uh, the lame walk, uh, the, I'm, I'm that one. And notice it says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Well, well the idea is that, 
that uh, those who reject him as Savior would be that he, they would be offended by them. And anyone who, is, who receives him as Savior is blessed. Uh, oh, how happy is the one who receives me uh, and is not offended by me. So that was Jesus' answers to John. You know, there are times when spiritual giants even go through momentary depression or confusion because we don't always necessarily feel like, wait, God, was this right? I, I've got to question this, whatnot. And, and uh, there's a, an answer to this, and we're going to see how God responds to Elijah. Not only did Jesus answer the legitimate seeking of John, as John sought Jesus out and his identity, Jesus responded with a legitimate answer because he was truly seeking. Well, we're going to see that God responds to Elijah here in this moment. Look at verse 5, going back to First Kings verse 5. It says, Then... As he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So God uh, ministers through his angel to Elijah. I know this is a, a strange event, but Elijah's all alone. And God uh, is going to minister to him through his angel. So, so one, we can learn that angels can bake cakes. So if you're a cake baker, you're closer to the Lord, right? No, <laughs> that's for Heather Coulter. So, yeah, yeah I'm married. <laughs> No, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I mean, you're, never mind, I'm just going <laughs> to. So uh, God ministers, you know, Elijah probably hasn't eaten at all. He's so disturbed and distraught about what's going on. He, he's not doing uh, just the fundamental things that he needs to do. And, and so the fact is, is God needs to sustain him physically as well as spiritually. And so God ministers to his need. And he sends this angel to give him strength, and he tells him to arise and eat twice. And then it says, uh, so he rose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. That's Mount Sinai. So we're not really totally sure where Sinai is. We have some ideas where we think, and there's certainly some good evidence for a particular mountain being Sinai. But at the very least, we're talking a 200-mile journey. Okay, from where Elijah's at. It's a big journey. And notice what Elijah's doing. Why is he going to Mount Horeb? Because it's the mountain of God. It's where Moses and his people met with the Lord. It's where he needs to be. So God strengthened him up so he can go there. So he can go be near God. Psalm 73, verse 28. The psalmist is uh, questioning, Asaph is questioning why the wicked prosper and why things go well for the wicked. And as he's going through this uh, argument in his head about what's going on, in Psalm 73, verse 28, or sorry, Psalm 73, what did I give you? Verse 25, yeah. Whom have I in heaven but you, Asaph writes, and there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Or you could say that's idolatry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Now, as the psalmist says this, this is a promise or a, a, uh, sorry, something that I think you should write down or keep next to you. Because I think we all go through times of defeat. We all go through times of depression. Notice verse 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. When we're in those periods of time where we're being, our, our future is being eclipsed by our present circumstances, this is what you need to do. Draw near to God. This is where you need to draw close to. You need to be sustained by God. Let him be your portion. Grow close to him and do the things that he commands you to do, not the things that you feel that you should do. Not, not the things that, that keep you out of serving him, but draw near to him and be encouraged by God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. You know, there are teachers who teach that no Christian should ever be sick or depressed or down. Listen, that's a lie. Those, that we're human. And unfortunately, there will be a time when we are perfected and we put on that resurrection body, that incorruptible body, and there's going to be a time where God will wipe away every tear and, and things will be good and as the, better, better than they are now and really perfect that will reach our fulfillment. But until that time, we're going to struggle with human feelings. We're going to struggle. Our emotions are going to lie to us at times. We're not going to feel always that we're worth something. Sometimes we're, we're going to lie to ourselves. Sometimes we're going to hear lies from the enemy. Whatever it is, what you need to do, Christian, is draw near to God and be sustained by God. That's what you need to do. Draw near to him. Uh, anytime I've met with individuals who are struggling with depression. You know, some of us are naturally happy. You know, have you ever noticed that? Some people are just naturally happy. And they're just like always happy. And you're like, wow, you're always happy. Uh, I, might, I might partially be one of those people um, that drive everybody else crazy. <laughs> so, some of us are naturally depressed. We're just naturally a little melancholy. That's just who we are. We came out of the womb that way. And um, if you struggle with being uh, depression or being down sometimes, you are not cursed by God. You are dealing with the effects of a fallen world. That's the reality of the matter. And Jesus Christ has come that you might have eternal life and relationship with him. And you've been given the full word of God to minister to you through those seasons in your life. That you might know the truth. And you need to know the truth. Because oftentimes we put, uh, we put standards upon ourselves that aren't even realistic. And we've never gone to God and said, okay, what's the real standard? Where do we really need to be? <clears throat> we need to hear from God on those things and hear God's opinion. Not opinion, sorry. Hear God's truth and not listen to man's opinion. And so Elijah uh, draws near to God. He goes to the mountain of God to Horeb, and now, and now we're going to see verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, 
in Hebrew it says, and there he went into the cave, not a cave, which is interesting because in Exodus 33, 22, God, it says that God put Moses in the cleft of the rock or, or it very possibly could be that, that same cave. I don't know. But, um, but he, God asked this question. I think God actually invented the Socratic method before Socrates. God likes to ask questions. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, that's a good question. Well, I prayed for you to kill me. It's enough. Just take me. Uh, I'm done living. You, you didn't respond. Instead, you gave me food, which would sustain me and keep me alive. So I figured I'd come here, God. You know, I don't know. I'm seeking you, God. We, we don't get a necessarily a full answer. We get this. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now pay attention to that. Elijah does not have a clear perspective on on reality. Elijah has a very skewed perspective. Did you hear what he said? I alone am left. It's not true. It's not at all true. And as a result of him believing a lie or maybe being uh, misunderstanding the reality of the situation. I'm not saying that he intentionally is lying to himself. Maybe he just doesn't know. But he's jumped to a conclusion that he alone is left. So he's saying, listen, Israel has fallen. Uh, they're worshiping false gods. They're, they're, putting, they're killing your prophets. I alone am left. And they seek to kill me now. Well, let me ask you, if you were to believe that you were the last Christian left. Wouldn't, wouldn't you actually want to stay around a little bit longer? Wouldn't it be worthwhile to stay around a little bit longer to tell others about Jesus? I mean, you're the only one left. You're the only one that, that, that bears that truth of the gospel. Wouldn't it be even more important for you to stay around? Man, we need support. We need encouragement. Uh, you would think that Elijah would say, all right, Lord, what do you want me to do next? But he's just so down on himself. Well, look at verse 11. Then he said, go out. God said, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, on, uh, and after the wind an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now I'm gonna just talk about this for a minute. This great wind that comes by the breaking rocks, I mean, that's pretty magnificent. All of a sudden this wind kicks up, all this power and force. Rocks are breaking, but God is not there. And, and then after that, that wind and the rocks breaking, there's an earthquake, but God is not there. And then there's a fire, but God is still not there. And oftentimes we want to find God in some magnificent situation. We want to have some uh, uh, incredible miracle to find God, some perfect setting. But it was the still small voice where Elijah found God. 
It was that quiet, small voice. And actually, we know that Elijah met the Lord there and recognized that still, small voice is the Lord. Because you see what Elijah does? He takes his mantle and he does what? He cut, wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood at the entrance. Oh, there you are, God. I'm not even worthy to look at you. I, I, I can't set my eyes upon you, but I know it's you. I know it's you. Do you have ears to hear that still small voice? Are you training yourself to, to listen to the truth? Uh, amidst the voices that are drowning out and all the noise. And, and I want to challenge you, especially those of you that are younger and on social media a lot, always checking Instagram. <laughs> You're checking your Instagram feed, your Snapchat feed, whatever the case is, and God is not there. You're checking, you're checking all sorts of things. You're checking the concert. You're checking this. You're checking that. But God is not there. But have you taken the time to listen to that still small voice? I loved Augie's prayer tonight after the end of worship about, about uh, seeking after you and returning to you and hearing you uh, as you ministered to us. That was beautiful. Uh, so, so he asked Elijah again, what are you doing here, Elijah. Verse 14, he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone alone and left, and they seek to take my life. There it is again. He, he says the same thing. Now look at verse 15, what God says to him. He's ready to speak to him. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. I love this. Travel 200 miles. Shows up in a cave. Uh, this event happens, and finally God responds and says, go back. <laughs> it's like, what? Okay. But look, look at the answer here. I'm going to give you the truth, Elijah. So go on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. So you're going to make someone a new king. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. So do you see that? Elijah, I have plans for you, and you're going to anoint the future kings. That's one of the things you're going to do. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, I'm not done. You're not alone. And you're going to go anoint this next prophet who's going to uh, uh, come after you. Uh, God gave Elijah a co-worker and a successor through Elisha. Now we're going to eventually get into the life of Elisha as well. And I know it's a little confusing, Elijah, Elisha. But it's important to understand that as, as God meets Elijah there, he meets him with the truth. He gives him the truth, and he gives him something to do. And so what does Elijah do? Well, we see Elijah submits himself. And, and that is the key. When you and I are feeling defeated and failures and feeling like we've, we've just, we, we can't, don't want to go on, we're just down in our loneliness, whatever the case is, what is God giving you to do? Go do it. Don't just believe the lies. Go do what God has called you to do. 
Has God called you to do anything? Has God called you to do something? That's a good question. What has God called you to do? Well, I already know that God has put a calling on your life. And you're like, wait, how do you know that? You're a prophet? No, I'm not a prophet. I just know the word of God. And I I can already tell you very simply, there are things that God has commanded you and I both to do. Like, go forth. Preach the gospel. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. That's a to-do. That's not an option. Do you want to go? Do you want to do this? That's not Jesus saying, do you want to? That's Jesus saying, go do. That's a calling on your life. If God commands you, go do. So already you know you have a calling. And of course, depending on your life circumstances, where you're at, what God's called you to do, there's something different. Uh, I was talking to my wife this morning because, you know, we have different friends that are moving out of state. And it seems like over and over people say, well, uh, Dave, you, you, you need to come here. You're going to really love it. And, uh, and, and tell me all about the grass being greener in the other state. You know, and... Um, she has a coworker who's talking to her. He's moving to this place in Tennessee, showing him this beautiful property and all this sort of stuff. And I said, you know, it's, it's funny because when, when people talk to us about these things, they say things like, oh, yeah, churches are growing there. You can, there's lots of churches. Oh, your husband's a pastor. There's lots of churches. And I said, you know, the amazing thing about this is, is uh, I, I have such a deep calling and conviction from God that I can't just go move. I, I, not until God releases. And if God's not releasing, I can't go do it. And, and you know what? Honestly, I would love to just have a job in the secular world where I worked 9 to 5 on Monday through Friday and, and then had weekends off and all that sort of stuff. That would be great. <laughs> you know? But you know what the problem is? I can't, I can never the calling and the, convic- the conviction is so strong that there'd be no peace or happiness doing that. So we have to always make sure we're listening to God. And even if you feel like a failure, you go do what God has called you to do. And there's plenty of times where, you know, I feel like, oh, did I misunderstand you, God? Did I, did I not hear you right? Did I screw this up? Did I do that? Yeah, that's kind of normal for preachers. But, but we have to obey God. We have to hear his calling, see what he set before us, and go do. And so Elijah gets this call to go anoint, to go do these things. And, um, and by the way, I just want you to know I love being a pastor. I, so I don't want you to think that I, I've, I'm resentful up here. No. So I, <laughs> I love doing ministry. Part of that is because I am called. I, I, I feel like this is where I find joy in the Lord, ministering and being, being with you all. Okay, uh, so Elijah, uh, verse 19, we're going to finish this chapter. We're going to do it. I think we are. Yeah, we're going to do it. So, so Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. That's a lot of oxen, by the way. And he was uh, with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment. 
and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So let me just explain what's going on here. So uh, Elijah departed, as he was told to do, and he goes and finds Elisha. Now, I don't know if there was a particular order God wanted him to do this in, if he wanted him to anoint a king first or whatnot. Text doesn't say, text doesn't say that Elijah was disobedient at all or anything like that. Uh, but uh, it is interesting that he goes first to find Elisha, because uh, the fact is, Elijah, he needs a co-worker right now. He, he needs somebody to be with him. He needs to not feel alone. And, and it's good to have this successor. So, but I love the way that he goes about it. Elisha's out there plowing. He must have had a big field uh, or a lot of land for the 12 uh, yoke of oxen before him. And, and uh, as he passes by, notice that he doesn't say anything. He just takes this, fur, this leather furry mantle Walks by, throws it on him, and keeps on walking. It's it's like, yeah, you can follow me if you want. I don't care, you know. It's like I'm just gonna throw it on you. And, and Elisha recognizes exactly what's happened. I've just been called by God. Now uh, we don't have that today. People don't throw mantles on us and go, oh, that's the calling. Let's do this. But uh, but he he throws it on him, and Elisha just says, please can. Because Elijah's just walking. <laughs> Elijah's like, okay, I got this mantle. I got to follow him. Please, can I go kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you? Now look at Elijah's response. Go back again for what have I done to you? I, I don't, this is kind of a weird response, but this is what I think Elijah is saying. Uh I think what Elijah is saying, uh, go back again for what have I done to you, is like, I'm not the one who called you. It's God. I'm not the one you need to get permission from. It's God. That's what I think is happening here. Now, it could be something different. I, I've, I've read a lot of different things about this, but I really believe Elijah is saying, what have I done to you? This isn't me who chose you. This is God who chose you. You need to speak to him. I love Elisha's response. Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people. So basically he, he slaughtered the oxen, he breaks up the equipment of the oxen and lights the fire, and, and he boils the flesh, he, he prepares the meal, feeds it to the people, and then he takes off and follows Elijah. This is that whole drop your nets, I'm making you fishers of men moment for Elisha. This is like, you don't need this equipment anymore because you're no longer a farmer. You're, you're following after me and you're doing it. You're, God has changed the, what you thought the path and course of your life is. It's going a totally different direction. And so he follows after Elijah. Man, I love this story. We're going to read a lot more about um, Elisha and Elijah coming. And uh, there's a lot of things coming up. So, but I want to encourage you, if you are dealing with some sort of depression... Uh, get prayer, uh, find a trustworthy, godly friend who can speak truth into your life. And you need to say, I will believe. You need to commit to believing them when they speak truth into your life because that's, sometimes that's hard for us to do, right? Uh, and then, of course, more than anything, seek God in his word and do what he says. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for uh, this story of Elijah. It's, Somehow it's soothing to see that others struggle with un- unbelief and discontentment and um, discouragement and failure. Um, Lord, it, 
helps us understand that we're not alone when godly men who you've called struggle with the same things we struggle with. Lord, I want to pray for anyone in this room tonight who struggles with depression, who struggles with not feeling good enough or feeling inadequate. Lord, I pray that they would just surrender themselves to you right now. You just pray this prayer, Lord God, I, I'm, I believe you. I'm surrendering my depression, my inadequacies, my discouragement. I'm surrendering it to you. Lord, minister to me now, just like you did your servant Elijah. I'm drawing near to you, God. Please meet me here. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, that you never leave us nor forsake us. (laughs) You love us so dearly and you know the plans you have for us. So, God, we trust in you. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Gerardo and Augie, Vince. It's an awesome bass. So, Manny, you're okay. Jason, great job. <laughs> so, I'm so glad you joined us tonight. Listen, if, uh, if any of you are struggling with depression or not hearing the truth, but letting your cir- circumstances eclipse, we're here for you. We want to pray for you. So come on up and we'll pray for you and, and uh, speak with you. Now may the Lord bless you. May he fill you with his peace. We pray this in his name. Amen.